This SCCM iCritical Care podcast is sponsored by Oridian Capnography, providing the earliest continuous indication of ventilatory compromise through capnography-based technology. The Oridian suite of products include MicroStream Capnography, Smart Capnography, and CO2 sampling lines, making capnography easy and practical to use to improve patient care and safety. For more information about Oridian, its products, and in-depth information about the life-saving value of capnography in critical care, visit www.oridian.com. www.oridion.com. Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, Please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Today we have an opportunity to speak with Dr. Tim M. Cook, FRCA, to discuss his article published in the British Journal of Anesthesia, the title of which is Major Complications of Airway Management in the United Kingdom. Results of the Fourth National Audit Project of the Royal College of Anesthetists and the Difficult Airways Society. The focus of this podcast is going to be on his important discussions of managing the difficult airway and specifically the use of continuous capnography to improve outcomes in patients that require intubation and that may have difficult airways. Dr. Cook is a consultant in anesthesia and critical care medicine at the Royal United Hospital in Bath, United Kingdom. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Cook. It's a pleasure. Well, again, as um, as you and I were speaking about before, I've tried to break this down into some nice talking points, and I'd like to give you a few minutes to share with the listeners a little bit of the background of the National Audit Project and uh, how this uh, current document came into being. Uh, it's a project that's been going on for about three years and was completed uh, in March of, of this year. And it was co-sponsored by the Royal College of Anesthetists uh, in London and uh, the Difficult Airway Society, which is the equivalent of SAM in the U.S. Uh, and it follows on from previous uh, audits in the in the U.K. But what we did was we tried to identify all major airway complications that occurred throughout the country for a period of one year in all NHS hospitals, so in all public service hospitals. Uh, and that's a, about 310 hospitals. We identified events happening in, in anesthesia, but also uh, of great importance in critical care and in the emergency department. And some of the greatest learning seems to have come from the cases that arose in critical care. And I guess one of the questions, just to help map it to, to the United States, is uh, who would be technically doing uh, the intubations in the ICU in the emergency department? I know it varies from hospital to hospital, but was there some sort of unified approach in some of the NHS hospitals about the, uh, the providers? Uh, in the NHS, uh, it will all be, always be a physician that is intubating, so an intensive care doctor. Uh, usually that will be what we call a consultant in most circumstances, but out of hours, it's more likely uh, that the physician performing intubation will be still in training. Uh, mostly, um, the intensive cares are manned by intensivists whose uh, original specialty is anesthesia, but there are some uh, who originate as physicians in emergency 
physicians. And in the emergency room as well, th- those will mostly be emergency room uh, trained physicians or anesthesiologists? We don't know um, completely, uh, but we think that about 80% of the intubations in the UK that take place um, are performed by critical care doctors rather than emergency physicians. Emergency physicians managing rapid sequence induction in the UK is uh, evolving and increasing. But uh, a survey that was done concurrently uh, by Professor Benjamin in Bristol identified that 80% of uh, intubations were done by critical care physicians. And how was it set up just for interest in terms of collecting all this data? Was there a centralized web page that every time somebody had a difficult airway or was concerned about it, they entered it in? Or, or how, was it, how was the determination made? Yeah, we spent a year setting up the project and getting permissions from our Department of Health uh, and various other bodies to carry on the project. We then identified a local reporter Uh, in every hospital, Um, and in most hospitals we had a local reporter for anaesthesia, for intensive care, for the emergency department, so three local reporters. There's a strict criteria for cases to be reported to us, so these were high-end complications, they were not simply difficult airways. So these were patients who, as a result of problems with airway management, uh, either died or developed brain damage, or or had to have an emergency surgical airway of any type, so cricothyroidotomy through to emergency tracheostomy, or were admitted to intensive care. And for those patients who are already resident on intensive care, if the event led to a prolongation of their stay. So these were these were all very serious events. These were not simply difficult airways, but these were these were either near miss deaths or in many cases actual deaths. And had anything like this ever been done before in the United Kingdom? No, is the simple answer. We'd, we'd, we'd done a similar study, which I led for uh, looking at major complications of central and axial block using the same methods. But in terms of looking at the airway and particularly identifying problems, not only in anesthesia, but in intensive care and the emergency departments, I think the answer is no. And I think realistically, the answer is in terms of the breadth of this project, it's not been done uh, worldwide up until, uh, up until this project. Well, I thought we could move on to the next talking point, which was incredibly fascinating and and very uh, results-rich, where you focused in on what you have observed. And if you'd like to take um, in the next few minutes and discuss some of these important observations, that would be great. Okay. Um, There are potentially quite a lot of results, and and uh, it requires a bit of filtering to draw out the important results. One of the key points was that uh, although about 20% of the events reported to us came from the intensive care departments. They did account for almost 50% of the deaths. So when an event occurred to a patient who was on intensive care, perhaps predictably, it was much more likely to end in brain death or, or death, so brain damage or death. So in anesthesia, we had 130 cases reported to us. Uh, with a 14% of those leading to death or brain damage, whereas in intensive care, more than 60% of the events ended up with a patient either dead or brain damaged. The sorts of patients uh, that this happened to, um, there were more males than females. They were generally reasonably young. They were often patients who had multi-organ failure or certainly had other organ system support, and about half the patients were requiring uh, more than 60% oxygen at the time of the event. So they were clearly ill patients to start with. 
Uh, another notable feature was that almost half the patients were obese. Uh, in the UK, uh, during the period of time that we collected the data, uh, the prevalence of obesity, a BMI of greater than 30, uh, was around 24%. Uh, so it was twice as often as in the general population, uh, obese patients uh, had these complications. And obese patients on ITU who, who suffered these events had a worse outcome than patients who were not obese. The types of events that happened fell largely into two categories. First category was problems at intubation, and those problems were either failed or delayed intubation, or, or a significant number of misplaced tubes, particularly esophageal intubations, which we'll come back to later perhaps. And then the second group of problems was the loss of an airway in a patient who was dependent on it, and the vast majority of those were tracheostomies. So there were a few uh, endotracheal tubes that fell out, orally placed, uh, but the vast majority were tracheostomies. And almost half of the ITU deaths were caused by uh, displacement of a tracheostomy inadvertently. So there's a, there's a couple issues that come up uh, right away in terms of comparing with, with standard care in the United States. Uh, in, in, in some of the larger uh, city hospitals, patients may have a tracheostomy and, and not be in an intensive care unit, and uh, that's one thing. The second thing I was going to ask you about are, are people who needed to be intubated on the floors and then come to the ICU. And then the third thing is, that sounds like a lot of problems with the tracheostomies falling out. Uh, and, and, and again, in, in patients who may have non- fresh trachs, that it should be reasonably straightforward to put them back in. But if you wanted to expound upon that, I think that's a super important area. Okay, there's a few questions there. The, f the first point about um, patients uh, being intubated on the ward and coming to, or on the floor on the ward, coming to intensive care, or patients having tracheostomies on the ward, there may have been problems with those patients, but we would not have picked them up. Our, the remit of our project was anesthesia, patients in critical care, and patients in the emergency department. So, we had to have a limit to the project, and those, those were the limits. So that there are likely to have been more events that happened that we did not identify, but I can't put a number on those. Uh, the problems with tracheostomies, to put it in context, with the 133 anesthesia events, we had 36 intensive care events, 60% of which led to death. Our estimates are that we probably captured only one quarter of the true number of events. So while we identified uh, 22 episodes of death and brain damage on intensive care, we think it is probably more likely that in the one-year period we studied there were approximately 100. There were a few, the typical case that would, would happen uh, in terms of tracheostomy displacement, some of them were freshly performed, some of them had been reasonably mature, so in for several days, but, but typically in for three or four days. And often in an obese patient, perhaps with a standard tracheostomy, we had some patients who had originally had a, uh, a flanged or longer tracheostomy, adjustable flanged tracheostomy, who then were changed to a perhaps a speaking tube, which happened to be shorter. And those tubes then displaced often when they were being turned or when they were moving themselves uh, during a sedation hold, and the tracheostomy became displaced. There was a notable finding that there was a delay in diagnosis of the uh, displacement of the tracheostomy. Um, very few of these patients have, had capnography in place, uh, and we identified that uh, a considerable majority of all the events 
and particularly the displaced tracheostomies. Uh, there was delayed diagnosis uh, because capnography was not in use and we uh, made a recommendation that capnography should be uh, universally applied to patients on in critical care. Well, so this is uh, this is perhaps the, the the key point of the whole podcast. So I'm going to rephrase it for you and let you talk about it some more. You're not talking about a situation where you're supervising me doing an intubation that the capnography. Uh, well, a it would hopefully prevent me from if I get into the esophagus knowing that quickly. But you're talking about more about a, a nurse or somebody being notified that somebody's tracheostomy has fallen out and an alarm would go off with the continuous capnography, right? Am I am I understanding you correctly? Yeah, the, 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 both events are covered by our recommendation for capnography. If I take the first point first, uh, there were the paper says three, but in fact, on further scrutiny, we identified a fourth case in intensive care of esophageal intubation. Uh, three of those patients uh, died. Um, in all cases, the esophageal intubations occurred uh, without capnography being in place. Most frequently, the intubation is being performed by a junior uh, intensivist, junior anesthetist. Um, those deaths uh, would almost certainly have been preventable had capnography been in place. The uh, tracheostomy displacements, again, it was almost uh, almost universal that capnography was not in place when the tracheostomy displaced. Some patients, uh, the problem was identified because the ventilator was alarming. Uh, in other patients, it may have been breathing spontaneously. It was not identified until marked hypoxia and, in a couple of cases, cardiac arrest. So either surgical emphysema or cardiac arrest being, the, being what identified the nurses to, uh, to the event, whereas we believe that appropriately alarmed capnography would identify uh, the problem pretty much immediately. And I, I guess, to, to, again, to flesh that out a little bit, my, my understanding, my background is internal medicine, critical care, but I spent some time in the operating room as part of my fellowship, and that this continuous capnography is more of a standard of care in operating rooms than in intensive care units. And if you'd like to talk a little bit more about maybe how it ended up that way and why you think things should change and how we should go about doing that, that would be great. You're absolutely right. Um, uh, capnography has been a, a uh, standard of care for any anesthesia in the operating rooms for probably 15 years. And uh, most of the colleagues that, that we reviewed these cases with, uh, we all agreed that were capnography not available when we took somebody to the OR, uh, we would not proceed with anesthesia. Whereas the circumstances appear to be very different, both in the emergency department and in ITU, where capnography is not, a, is, is not in the UK a standard. We estimate that about 25, or we believe from previous surveys, that about 25% of ITUs in the UK use continuous capnography, while 40% of them uh, use it for intubation. Now, this is slightly perverse. We would never anesthetize a patient in the operating rooms and then take off their capnograph for the rest of the case. It would be a perverse thing to do. And, of course, the intensive care patients are, are not looked after by an anesthesiologist or an intensivist throughout their time. Their bedside care is delegated to a nurse who does not have the same uh, anesthetic or airway skills, perhaps. So we do appear to be applying different standards. Uh, and our, our paper has promoted much discussion in the UK. Um, already we see a change in practice in quite a few hospitals, and I would, I would, I would uh, hope that in 
within a year, capnography for all patients dependent on an artificial airway in ITU will be the standard. Well, and hopefully with this, we'll generate some discussion here in the United States as well. So um, I guess I remember when they were first bringing this up to me to, to talk with you about, I thought I understood it and said, no, we already have, we use capnography. As part of our intubation kit, we do have this colorimetric analysis, but you specifically don't feel that's enough. And if you'd like to talk about that, I'd, I'd really appreciate it. Our view was that um, the majority of these cases, if we, if we consider period of time dependent on an artificial airway in, in intensive care, a bit like anesthesia with induction and maintenance and then extubation. The vast majority of these cases occurred during the maintenance phase of intensive care, which of course is the longest period of time. But these were unexpected events, usually tracheal tube displacement. Um, and it's likely, so a colometric um, device might be used at the time of intubation to say, yes, I'm in the trachea, not the esophagus. And, and then it's really served its function and, it, and it's removed. Whereas continuous waveform capnography um, is, appears to be more suited to continuous monitoring. One wouldn't put on a pulse oximeter and say the saturation's 92% and then take it off and come back an hour later to look at it. And while, of course, the capnograph may have many other uses in intensive care, the, the particular use that we're talking about is, is simply using it as a, as a measure of uh, patency of the airway. Um, I spoke to a, a journalist in the UK briefly about this, and I... There was a lady who'd been on our intensive care for approximately 40 days, and I explained to him that by using continuous waveform capnography, we had monitored every single breath that that lady took for the 40 days that she'd been there. Every breath had been indicated by a white square wave going up and down on, on her bedside monitor. And I think it's that that's necessary if these reasonably infrequent but, but very important events are to be prevented. If I may, I'll put in context when I say reasonably infrequent. In the NAT4 project for anesthesia, we did a national survey to identify how many anesthetics are given in the UK. And that figure came out as 2.9 million general anesthetics given in the UK. And then if we put our numerator in uh, of the number of deaths uh, during anesthesia and brain damage of 21, then we end up with an approximate uh, incidence of death or brain damage uh, during anesthesia, about one in 180,000 cases. So an airway death during anesthesia, about one in 180,000 cases. In intensive care, we can use other statistical data from the from the Department of Health statistics, and that tells us that about 50,000 patients were intubated and managed with advanced respiratory care in in the same period. So the 22 deaths that we have, deaths and brain damage that occurred on ITU in that cohort of 48,000 patients represents approximately a 70-fold greater incidence of death and brain damage than during anesthesia. So the rates are roughly 1 in 180,000 in anesthesia and 1 in 2,700 in, in intensive care. With the emergency department falling between those rates. No, and and as you're talking, you reminded me because my a lot of my mentors in fellowship were anesthesiologists, and they explained to me that sort of the ICU is not the place to learn. It's not the best place or the most user friendly place to learn how to intubate, and and that's why we spent some time in the operating room because sort of everything's stacked against you. If you're seeing a patient who's deteriorating from a respiratory standpoint, and then you have to intubate them, it's a race. It's not like this is a healthy patient who happens to need their airway secured. Um, 
and, and I wanted to make two important points just reiterating what you've said. The first was that, as you point out, that the failure to use capnography contributed to 74% of cases of death or persistent neurological injury in your study. Um, and, and this was emphasized in, in your paper and the press releases, and I, I wanted to really make that a very, very clear point. And the second is more of a question to you is let's pretend this promulgated within the United States. This is equipment that hospitals are already using in operating rooms so that if hospitals needed to expand them to the ICUs and the emergency rooms, it wouldn't be that they already have this kind of equipment in their hospitals, right? Absolutely. So you're absolutely right on the, on, on the number. We were quite conservative in the review panel in determining whether we thought a, a, a death could or an event could have prevented or a death prevented by using capnography. So we would say that probably, I would say, at least 80% of the events on ITU uh, should have been identified early and therefore either mitigated or prevented by use of capnography. The, the equipment is available. Uh, lots of people will, will put up technical reasons as to why it can't be used. But we've been using capnography on our intensive care only for about two years. But every patient who comes to the intensive care, the nurses now automatically put capnography before they're intubated. It makes it ready for intubation, and then it's used throughout their, their care. And I have never been called by them to say there's a problem with the capnography. We know that occasionally uh, we get water f uh, filling, the, filling the the lead from the, from the capnograph to the monitor, and we need to be careful to prevent that. But those people who say there are too many technical problems um, have not worked in a unit where the nurses are familiar with doing it, and they do it in the same way as they do the many, many roles that they do. If I could pick up on, on one point um, Please, yeah. you made about intensive care being an, uh, effectively being a hostile place to intubate, I think that's absolutely right. And I think, it's, there, of course, there are many reasons why the patients may have events uh, on intensive care have a worse out out outcome than in anesthesia. So they're sicker, they often have multi-organ failure, the, um, the lighting may be different, the, position, the positioning may be different, may be difficult to get to patients, all sorts of reasons why it's a hostile environment. But to my mind, that makes it even more important that the simple monitors that are already available uh, in hospitals and at relatively modest cost should be used on these patients. In the UK, the setup cost for um, putting capnography monitoring into an intensive care bed is about $3,000. Once it's in place, it costs less than $4 per day per patient. So the costs compared to the rest of intensive care are very modest. And as you point out, it's completely non-invasive. And really, as you say, one or two cases like this, A, if they're preventable, we should be trying to prevent them. And B, if we can prevent them in a completely non-invasive fashion, then it's, you know, why, why aren't we doing this would be what national leaders would say, right? I agree. I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about uh, one or two last points, and then we'll conclude. One, uh, uh, separate from the capnography, one is you pointed about some staffing issues, and the second is I wanted to ask you about things like backup plans and use of equipment like the GlideScope. Uh, could one argue that this could be an also part of a comprehensive approach to improve things? There are many things that we looked at. We found that compared to anesthesia, events in both the emergency department and critical care were much more likely to occur out of hours. There were more the events were more likely to be handled by quite junior medical staff. So our residents may be quite junior, may have only have two or three years experience uh, post uh, qualification as a doctor. Um, and 
through no fault of their own, these doctors may not be equipped to uh, handle these, these events. We think that they can be supported uh, both at the time of intubation. Intubation, it should be a more senior doctor performing on intensive care. But one of the things we put in the back of, our, of the report, which is available uh, on uh, the college website, was an intubation checklist. Checklists are increasingly prevalent uh, in much of medicine, and we think that this checklist or a similar one may add value at the time of intubation because it stops things being forgotten and stops problems happening. I use it every day when I intubate a patient on intensive care now. We also developed some algorithms uh, for management of predictable problems on intensive care. So we have algorithms in the report for unexpected atracheal tube displacement and unexpected tracheostomy displacement. Both algorithms have uh, one pathway for residents to follow and then one to manage greater problems that can be um, followed by a, a more senior doctor if they attend. So I think these problems are predictable. In every intensive care, somebody's tracheal tube will fall out this year and someone's tracheostomy will fall out this year. Most of the time, it's probably picked up quite quickly and managed quite straightforwardly. But speaking to a lot of intensivists in the United Kingdom, most have tales to tell about the tracheostomy that fell out and that wasn't managed well and that the patient died. And since then, they've changed their practice. So I think our project gives people the opportunity to actually to, to focus a bit more on the airway and these preventable uh, complications and preventable deaths and prepare themselves for it, prepare, prepare themselves as institutions and prepare themselves as individuals. So the right equipment is there. A difficult airway cart is available in all intensive cares. A fibroscope is available in all intensive cares. Standard operating procedures are available. Checklists are available. Some education takes place of nurses and residents and more senior doctors in appropriate management. And, of course, the monitoring is there to, to detect these events. But all those things happen. And those are forms of institute, what I call institutional preparedness. And then the doctors themselves have to make sure that they are prepared, that there's personal preparedness to deal with these problems, that they're familiar with the SOPs, that they're familiar with the capnographs on their unit, and they're familiar with the, with, with the particular problems of the individual patients they're looking after on a, on a particular shift. Well, Dr. Cook, uh, I'm really uh, very grateful that uh, you could find some time to be with us today. These difficult airways are some of the most dramatic and traumatic uh, situations that intensivists can find themselves in, and yet it's part of what we need to be able to do. And I think some of the important points that your very, very important document made were for institutions to optimize staffing, uh, potentially that this concept of having the most junior people on off hours involved, if it is occurring, perhaps there are ways that that should be mitigated, that there should be a structured approach to this at all times, and that you should be thinking, what if the next step fails? What if I can't get it now? How am I going to proceed? And coming up with the thought leaders at the institutional level to come up with the best approach for that hospital. And then finally, as you mentioned, that a completely non-invasive technique with using continuous capnography, uh, as you point out in your important study that contributed to 74% of either death or persistent neurological injury, this is equipment that all hospitals are using in their operating rooms already, and that with physician champions and clinician champions, this kind of equipment can be promulgated out to intensive care units and emergency rooms to simply save lives, correct? Indeed. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Cook. Have a great day. It's my pleasure. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's 
iCriticalCare podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information, as well as access to over five years of archived podcasts. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. This SCCM iCriticalCare podcast is sponsored by Oridian Capnography, providing the earliest continuous indication of ventilatory compromise through capnography-based technology. The Oridian suite of products include MicroStream Kepnography, Smart Kepnography, and CO2 sampling lines, making Kepnography easy and practical to use to improve patient care and safety. For more information about Oridian, its products, and in-depth information about the life-saving value of Kepnography in critical care, visit www.oridian.com. www.oridion. Com. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the medical co-director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City, practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org. Dot org.